We're going to turn now back to the letters of John. We have been looking at John's first letter for a couple of weeks. And last week, John used an interesting um, title to talk about the Christian members of his audience, whom he's writing to. He called them children of God. And he used that analogy to help solidify their relationship with God, to help them see that God, they are born of God. They cannot be removed from him. But also in doing so, uh, John created a, a distinction between the children of God and everyone else. And this morning, what we're going to see is that he continues to draw that distinction out to talk about what separates the children of God from everyone else. And as we hear the passage read, I want to ask you this question. If you walked into a Starbucks or the lobby of your office building or a PTA meeting or a neighborhood association meeting, how would you know if anyone there was a Christian? Or if you call yourself a Christian, would anyone know that you are? Let's give ear to the reading of God's word. A reading from 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. But this, by this it is evident, we are the children of God, And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we come before you this morning and ask uh, that you would send your spirit to us. Help us to see and understand what you're uh, telling us here in this passage. Help us to know and to believe the truth that if we follow Jesus, if we've been covered in his blood, then we are your children. And because we are your children, we will live like it. Help us to know what that means for us and to trust that when we fail, there is forgiveness. Pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. It was about a year ago that Wilson was over at my house watching football. Wilson, our music director, uh, he was recovering from uh, hip surgery at the time, was on crutches, couldn't walk very easily, and he couldn't drive. So he Ubered to my house. After the game was over, he Ubered home, and about 10 minutes later, I got a call from him. He said, hey, did I leave my keys at your house? I looked on the counter of the kitchen. I said, no, I don't see him here. And he said, Laura's not here and I don't have my keys. I can't get into the apartment. I said, hold on, let me look really carefully. I'll give you a call back. So I started looking here and there, looked in the trash just to make sure he didn't throw them away on accident. And I finally found them down in the cushions of the couch where he had been sitting. They must have fallen out of his pocket and sunk down into the couch. And as I was walking back to my phone to call him and tell him I had them, I started thinking, how am I going to get these keys back to him? Nicole was out and our two girls were down for a nap. I didn't want to wake them up just to drive the keys to him, but it felt, I felt bad asking him in his state of recovery to 
order another Uber, wait for the Uber, try to get in the car, come all the way back over, get his keys, go all the way back just to get into his apartment. And that's when I thought, I'm pretty sure that I've heard people send stuff to other people through Uber, right? Like you can just give something to an Uber driver and they'll take it over to someone you want it to go to, right? It's like a cheap FedEx. Um, and I convinced myself that I'd heard other people do, uh, doing this. And so I called Wilson. I said, hey, I've got them, but don't worry, I've got a plan. I'm going to Uber your keys to you. And he was like, you can't do that. And I said, no, I'm pretty sure I've heard that people do this all the time. Like, it's really easy, and you live close enough to me where I don't think it's that big a deal. And he was like, that's not going to work. I said, the worst thing that's going to happen is they'll just cancel the ride. He was like, okay, fine. So we hang up. I ordered an Uber, put in my address, put in Wilson's address as the destination. The guy pulls up and he wa- I walk out, he rolls down the window and he says, Stephen? And I said, yeah, I've got a question for you. He looks at me suspiciously. I go through the whole story, football, crutches, keys, Wilson, all that kind of stuff. Girls down for a nap, don't want to go. I said, will you take my, his keys to him? And it, you know, I've heard people do this all the time. Would you be willing to do this? And he was like, I don't think people do this at all. <laughs> I said, no, I'm positive. Uh, And it's just over there. It's like a a five-minute drive. It's no big deal. I said, in addition to the fare, I'll give you 10 bucks. So he looks at me. He looks at the keys in my hand. He looks at his phone, and he goes, all right, I can do it. (laughs) 10 minutes later, I get a text from Wilson. Got my keys in the apartment. Thank you very much. (laughs) I concocted this whole scheme because I was pretty sure I'd heard that tons of people do this. People don't do this, by the way. (laughs) I did this. John is writing to his audience that are in somewhat of a similar scenario. The Christians of the first century were living in a society that was, yes, very different from the society that we are living in today, but in other ways, not different at all. They had received and believed the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. They had experienced the freedom from their sin and death that Jesus brought them, and they were faced now with a question that you and I are faced with as well. If Jesus really is who he says he is, if he died and rose from the dead just as he said he would, what now? Jesus isn't physically here with us anymore. He wasn't with them either. Chances are the the audience John is writing to didn't have an apostle sitting with them, telling them what to do day in and day out, and neither do we. So the question is, what does being a Christian mean Monday morning and Saturday night? What does Jesus expect from his followers? How does following Jesus fundamentally change who I am and how I should live? And one of the hard things for us is that that answer can be confused by all of the voices we have in our society. Right? There are thousands of blogs and books from popular Christian pastors and preachers and speakers telling us how we should live. There are countless podcasts that tell Christians uh, which cultural trends they should embrace and which they should shun, right? There are scores of powerful evangelicals using uh, their financial, social, and political acumen in order to create a society, a culture, a setting that is comfortable and safe for Christians, And it's easy to get confused about how we should live. Now, the audience John is writing to didn't have all that stuff. But there was a group of teachers going around proclaiming that believing in Jesus looked incredibly different than what they had received from the apostles. And so questions arose, questions maybe you've asked yourself 
in the past couple of months. Are those people really Christians? Should I be living like them? Am I allowed to live like them? Is there really a set way that Christians should live? John's letter comes to this audience as an encouraging one, telling these believers, yes, you are children of God, and because you're children of God, you will live like a child of God. Not in a compulsive way. He's not saying, you're a child of God, so act like it. What he's saying is this. If you're a child of God, it's because you've been born of God. And if you've been born of God, you'll behave as a member of the family behaves. You have no choice. That is the only way you are able to live. And the way John communicates that is by saying this. What you do matters. So practice righteousness and see Jesus in you. Those are our three points this morning. What you do matters, so practice righteousness and see Jesus in you. Let's start by looking at this idea of what you do matters. Now, the false teachers that were coming through, we call them Gnostics. And what they were teaching was that uh, it was all about believing and knowing the special knowledge that Jesus gave them, right? It was all about knowing the right thing. As long as you knew the right thing, what you did and how you lived, it didn't really matter. Because this stuff, your body, your physical relationships, this world, all of creation, it was all going to pass away. It was insignificant. It didn't really matter. And so sinning, that was just like an Old Testament thing. Now we know better. Breaking God's law, that's an Old Testament thing. Now we know better. As long as you had this special knowledge Really, you could do whatever you wanted to do. And John comes out at the beginning and he puts that to bed. He says, that is not true. It is not an Old Testament thing. Sinning, following God's law is important. He says at the very beginning in verse four, sin is lawlessness. Now, our Bible translators have translated the Greek word anomia as lawlessness, and that's accurate. But for us today, lawlessness has lost its sense of personal touch. We can remove ourselves from breaking laws very easily. But this word is very personal. This word has a connotation not just of of not doing what God wants us to do. It has a, a connotation of being unyielding. Not just breaking God's law, but turning your back on the law giver. Right? Thumbing your nose at the idea of having to submit yourself to anyone or anything. This same word is translated elsewhere in scripture as evil. John is saying sin is evil. And it's the same kind of evil that is used to describe Satan and the works that he has done. John says here very clearly, when you sin, you are rebelling against God. If you practice sin, you've chosen sides. And guess what? It's the wrong one. Now, it might be easy for you to say, what does this have to do with me? I've never in my life said, this stuff doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. No, none of us would actually say that. But truthfully, we do come up with other rationales to continue on doing things we know we shouldn't, right? We come up with all these excuses and reasons in order to continue on in sin, to continue to do what we want. I've seen this recently come out in Margaret, our three-year-old. She's really into doing puzzles right now. She'll run into our playroom, grab a box, a puzzle in the box, and she'll run into the house, dump all the pieces out, and say, Daddy, will you help me build this puzzle? 
We'll sit down. This happened just this last week. We'll sit down, start to separate the border pieces from the middle pieces. And about halfway into constructing the border of the puzzle, she's done. That's enough. That's all she wanted. But the rule in our house is if you make the mess, you clean it up. And so as she gets up to run away, I say, Margaret, if you're done, you need to clean up the puzzle. I don't want to do that. All throughout the day, Margaret, don't forget to clean up the puzzle. I don't feel like it. Margaret, please clean up the puzzle. Not right now. And finally, on this particular day, she wanted to watch uh, her episode of TV with her sister. And they said, Daddy, can we watch? I said, Margaret, you're not allowed to watch TV until you clean up the puzzle. I don't want to clean up the puzzle. I know, Margaret, but the rules are you make the mess, you clean it up, you cannot watch TV until you clean up the puzzle. You would have thought that I sprayed her in the face with pepper spray. She lost it. She started crying. She was so upset. I don't want to clean up the puzzle. I want to watch TV. I don't want to do what you're telling me to do. I don't want to clean up the puzzle. And finally, a face red with anger and tears pouring down it. She looked at me and she said, you're hurting my feelings. (laughs) It was beautiful because she was being honest, right? From her heart, she was telling me, you want me to do something I don't want to do. What you want me and expect me to do is standing in the way of what I want to do. And it hurts. And from that deep, dark place of her three-year-old heart, I recognized something in my own 33-year-old heart. That's how I feel. When I recognize that what God wants from me stands in the way of what I want for myself, I don't necessarily cry out, God, you're hurting my feelings, but I come up with other ways to get around it. We come up with other rationales to continue on in sin. Right? We use the disguise of concern and helpfulness to talk about other people's problems and their relationships. Right? We know how to hide our gossip. We neglect our families so that we can work more hours because we are providing for them or we're planning for the future. Right? We indulge in gluttony or drunkenness or pornography because we use the excuse, it's been a long week and I just need to take the edge off a little bit. I've earned it. Besides, it doesn't really hurt anybody else, does it? We continue to hurt people over and over again with our actions or our words or our inactions, and we use the excuse, that's just who I am, it's how I've always been, you really need to adjust to me. We grow in our selfish behaviors, in our selfish routines, and we say, it's just me caring for myself, a little bit of self-love. What John says here to us, is that if you continue to make excuses so that you continue to sin, you're choosing sides. No matter how uh, good and valid those reasons are, no matter how much the world champions what you're saying, if you continue to find a way to keep on sinning, you are choosing sides. Verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That's incredibly challenging to us, but also it goes directly against this message that these false teachers were saying. John says, actions matter. How you live, how you treat people, how you obey God, it all matters. So, he says, practice righteousness. What you do matters, so practice righteousness. Listen to how adamant He is about the practice and habits of Christians. Start in verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Go back to verse six. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John says, children of God do not practice sin. They practice righteousness. Now, obviously, we have to talk about this word practice, right? John is talking about repetitive action in order to achieve a certain goal, right? That's how we understand practice. He's saying the children of the devil, they work really hard to get really good at sinning, right? And children of God, they work really hard to be perfect like God is perfect, right? That's what John is talking about here. Not exactly, right? It's easy for us to interpret it that way because that's how we think about practice, We think about practice and we think about Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule. If you wanna get really good at something to become an expert in it, you have to commit 10,000 hours to it. That's not exactly what John is talking about here, right? He's not saying commit 10,000 hours to being righteous and eventually you'll be righteous. Commit 10,000 hours to sin, there's no hope, you've gone too far, right? If he was saying that, verse seven wouldn't make sense. Read verse seven with me, little children, Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. How can I be working really hard in order to attain a goal if doing the work means I have attained the goal? That doesn't make sense. We have to understand that what John is speaking about when he's talking about practicing sin or practicing righteousness is the bent of your heart. What is your natural tendency What he is saying here is, when it comes to the children of the devil, their natural tendency is to rebel against God, to find ways to continue to stay in their sin. And for the children of God, their natural bent is to find ways to be like God. Their natural bent is toward righteousness. Well, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make me feel any better. If I look at the the course of my life, it doesn't feel like it's always trending up towards being righteous. N.T. Wright, who is a a pastor and a scholar and an author, he has a really helpful illustration about this passage that helps us understand more at what John is getting at. And it comes from the perspective of a musician. N.T. Wright says, we're all musicians. We all have a piece of music in front of us and we're all playing it. And when God saves you, he takes that piece away and gives you a new sheet of music, new notes, new melodies. But that doesn't mean that you'll play it perfectly. You won't you can't. You'll still mess up. You'll play wrong notes, notes that belong to the old sheet of music. And the thing about it is children of God, they recognize that the notes are wrong and they don't go back to playing the old piece of music, right? No matter how uh, familiar it feels, no matter how easy that melody is, no matter how comfortable it is to realize that finally, at last, you're playing the same music as the person sitting next to you. If you've been saved, the music is new, and you go back to playing the new music, no matter how you fumble through it. John is not saying children of God, they get it perfectly. They never mess up. In fact, he has said earlier in his letter, if you say that you are without sin, you're a liar. He says everybody sins, we understand that. But the children of God, their bend is toward righteousness. Now here's a really important thing, I don't want you to miss this. God in his gracious mercy has provided two paths of righteousness, if you will. The first 
is obeying the law perfectly. Every letter of the law always obeying it. Guess what? That way is closed to you and I. We've sinned. But God also gives us the capacity to receive Jesus' righteousness as our own through his death and resurrection on the cross. This is the, the beautiful exchange that happens on the cross. Jesus willingly took your sinfulness, your failure, your corruption upon himself, and he gives to you his righteousness and his perfection. How so? By repenting of your failure and believing that he has washed you in his blood. That's how that exchange happens. John says, what you do matters, not in that you're gonna get it perfectly, but in that you recognize that you are a sinner and the only way that you can be righteous is by repenting and believing. So practice repenting and believing. And he says one more thing, repent and believe, practice righteousness, and see Jesus in you. What you do matters, so practice righteousness and see Jesus in you. This is a really important part of what John is saying, right? If we just stop there at repent and believe, that's really good. That is amazing and powerful and is life-changing, but it's easy for us to twist that into a work harder sort of idea, isn't it? I just gotta repent more and I just gotta believe more and that's all it takes. And John says, actually, you have to see that God is working righteousness in you now that Jesus is in you now, that God is working his righteousness into you by making Jesus grow in you, right? Follow this line of logic. It's not linear for John, it moves around. So I'm gonna jump around a little bit, but follow this line of thought. We start at the end of verse eight. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Back up to verse five. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John says this, you know that Jesus came in order to defeat Satan, to completely destroy the works of Satan, and when it comes to you, what that looks like specifically is to remove your sin. Not just in the sense of like guilt and overall punishment, right? Jesus came in order to remove the punishment of your sin, yes, but also to extract sin from you. That sin that you run to when life is stressful in order to calm your heart down, Jesus came to take that from you, right? The sin that keeps cropping up in your life day after day, week after week, year after year, whatever it is, Jesus came in order to take that from you. Really, how does he do that? He puts his seed in you. God's seed abides in you, the Holy Spirit. And throughout your life, from the moment that you were saved, it grows and it grows until you are the likeness of Jesus. God is making you righteous as he is righteous. And if you're like me, you hear that and you say, that's exciting, but I don't see that. I'm still angry, as angry as I was 10 years ago. I still struggle with this same sin. I still haven't gotten free from the effects of how I've damaged my family with this sin, whatever it is. I don't see Jesus growing in me. I'm still messed up. All I can see when I look at my life is my failure. And that's good. That's good because that's not you. John says here, 
if you sense yourself recognizing the wrong notes that you're playing, if you go back to the analogy, that's not you. We're talking about conviction. When is the last time that you felt convicted that you had done something wrong? Maybe it was over the course of a couple of months you recognized that a pattern in your life was wrong and sinful. Maybe it was a moment of inspiration where you realized that you messed up. Maybe you yelled at your neighbor or your spouse or the guy sitting beside you in traffic who cut you off only to realize his window is down and now you feel bad about it. Maybe uh, you woke up the morning after with a hangover and a deep sense of guilt that you had done something wrong. Maybe you walked away from the TV or the computer and realized, I should not have watched that. You walked away from a conversation and you thought, I should not have been talking about that or I should not have been talking about him or her. When is the last time you felt like you've done something wrong? John says, that's not you convicting yourself. That's Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit in you saying, that's a wrong note. Here's an opportunity to practice righteousness, to repent and to believe. That's God in you working righteousness in you. John goes one step further and he makes it incredibly applicable for us. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John says this is incredibly important as it comes to how you relate to people around you how you care for people around you, how you love others in your midst. This is really important, and particularly how you feel about how you've messed up when it comes to other people. When someone comes to you and says, hey, I've kind of noticed this pattern in your life, and I'm somewhat concerned. If someone comes to you and says, actually, the last time that we were together, what you said really hurt me. If someone comes to you and says, I'm worried about this habit of yours, what is your response? Is your response to be defensive? To say, you don't know what it's like to be me. You don't know what I've gone through. Is it to puff up your chest and try to prove yourself right and them wrong? To defend yourself? No matter if you feel guilty inside, if if your response to this other person is, I'm going to keep doing what I want to do, no matter what you think I should do. You're just making excuses to keep on sinning. What John says here is that voice inside that says you're guilty is Jesus convicting you internally. And sometimes Jesus sends you people from the outside to tell you that you are sinning. Same type of conviction, same Jesus, different voice. What John is saying here is the children of God, you have to recognize that you're gonna play wrong notes Sometimes Jesus tells you inside through the spirit that you're playing wrong notes. Sometimes a person next to you nudges you and says, that was a wrong note. And our response should not be figuring out a way to keep playing wrong notes. But the response should be, you're right. I am gonna mess up. Thanks for letting me know. I'm really sorry that I did that to you. I'm really sorry that I've hurt you in this way, that I've caused problems for you. Repenting and believing As I was walking around my garage last night, working on the sermon, God brought a a memory to my mind that I have not thought of in years. Um, And it's it's very convicting. Um, It's within a year after my dad left us. For some reason, he came back to our house. I don't remember what it was, 
And uh, I was so angry and hurt and self-righteous, I can see myself standing on the bricks of our front porch uh, because that made me a little bit taller so I could almost see him eye to eye and yelling Bible verses at him and telling him how unloving he was and how selfish he was. And if he really believed in God, that he wouldn't be doing what he was doing. And this was all his fault and just yelling at him. And now all these years later, 20 20 plus years later, I felt convicted of it. Partly because I'm not sure I ever apologized specifically for that, but also because I realized that this is the old melody that I run to over and over again feeling superior, looking down on other people, judging and making other people feel inferior to me. And what John is saying here is, to me and to all of us, when you recognize the old melody coming up again, when other people point that out to you, whether it's your spouse or a coworker or a pastor or a friend or your child, your response is one of humility you're right. That is who I am. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Now, the reason that I'm telling you this story is twofold. First, because I do recognize that this is who I am and how I behave. And chances are, I've made you feel that way. I've made you feel insignificant and unable to live up to the standard that I hold for myself and for other people. And I need you to come and convict me of that. Not all at once, but over time. (laughs) And secondly, because I do want you, someone, to ask this week if I called my dad and apologized for that thing. Because this is how God's family work. As children of God, we hold each other accountable, not so that we're perfect, but so that we recognize opportunities to practice righteousness. What we do matters matters in the sense not that we can live perfectly, memorize our Bibles, have perfect quiet times, but in the sense that God is growing himself in us. The conviction we feel, the conviction that we hear, we respond to by asking for forgiveness and receiving it from each other and from God who gives it to us from the cross. Let's pray. God, what good news that we don't have to hide that we don't have to pretend like we've got it all together, that when we feel guilty, when others come and tell us how we've hurt them and how we have been guilty, that we can respond by saying, you are so right and I'm sorry. Thank you that you tell us when we respond that way to you, when we repent of our sins, you meet us not with anger, not with disappointment, not with the thought again, but you meet us with love. You meet us with welcoming arms and you do that because of your son who lived the perfect life we couldn't live and died the death we deserve to die. We thank you for him, for his victory over the grave and rising from it and we pray in his name, amen.